0: All right, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of August 28th from my apartment on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Amid all of the ghastly events which are happening in Afghanistan, which inevitably I am going to touch on tonight, uh, I'm going to be doing so in the context of uh, revisiting the whole question of humanitarian intervention and particularly uh, the book, The Responsibility to Protect in Libya and Syria, Mass Atrocities, Human Protection, and International Law, by Syrian-American legal scholar Yasmin Nalawi, released by uh, Routledge in 2020, which we reviewed and discussed on our podcast of uh, April 21st. And uh, the reason we're going to be uh, re-exploring this question is that uh, uh, listeners will recall that on our podcast of last week, we made a special offer to the listeners. We're really trying to get more Patreon subscribers. It's kind of an imperative that we do so, because uh, Counter Vortex is experiencing something of a financial crunch at the moment, shall we say. So, in order to sustain our efforts, we need more Patreon subscribers. So, we made a um, a, a special offer last week. The people who will sign up for uh, $2 per podcast on Patreon, at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash countervortex, you will get to choose for one episode per year that you're signed up what I will... Um, discuss, or rant about, as the case may be. And uh, I'm pleased to say that one of our listeners took the plunge and went for it, which means that we're now up to 28 Patreon subscribers. So uh, a big thank you to all of our 28 patrons, as the lingo goes. And uh, the newest one to sign up at the uh, two bucks a pop rate, that is to say $2 per weekly podcast, $2 a week, was um, our friend, Eric Larson, the author of The Duty to Stand Aside, 1984 and the Wartime Quarrel of George Orwell and Alex Comfort, which we discussed on our episode of June 19th and uh, had some differences with. A very interesting and worthwhile book, without a doubt, but we had some differences with it. And Eric... A uh, skeptic about the whole notion of um, humanitarian intervention, as I am, asked us to uh, review the question, and uh, Eric, in his uh, comment on the Counter Vortex website, under the entry for that podcast, Humanitarian Intervention Reconsidered, of April 21st of this year, writes, very interesting and provocative podcast. I also read a summary by the author of Nalawi's book, which opened up another angle on R2P, that is the Responsibility to Protect doctrine, that Bill doesn't cover. Briefly, Bill meaning me. (coughs) Briefly, Nawali notes that R2P is at best an incomplete doctrine Two points jumped out at me. First, Malawi notes that the critical third pillar of R2P, the obligation of the international community to respond to atrocities, and I will add to respond militarily by force if need be, is very poorly defined, unclear as to who the bearers of the obligation are, and unclear as to exactly what steps these bearers are permitted or obligated to take. It is also not yet clearly accepted by states in general. Second, the limitations on the mandate are unclear. For instance, when, if ever, are the bearers of the obligation authorized to seek regime change, and to what extent do they have a mandate to rebuild? R2P is at the core of the discussion of humanitarian intervention, but it's a Ramshackle Doctrine at Best. All right, I'm going to respond by returning to some of uh, Yasmin Nalawi's own words, but I'll also add that uh, pointing out that R2P is not yet clearly accepted by states in general, and that it is um, incomplete or a work in progress, is kind of obvious, because her book is precisely designed to provide some legal clarity on the question and to get states to generally accept it. So those comments are kind of neither here nor there. Um, And having returned to the book over the past couple of days, I note that most of her um, caveats about the incomplete nature of the R2P doctrine have to do precisely with the um, obstacles that still exist in the uh, United Nations bureaucracy to its application. Some of the final passages of the book, the Syrian conflict confirmed that in its current form R2P is ill-equipped to consistently and effectively deliver on the prevention of and reaction to mass atrocity crimes. In order to rectify existing inadequacies, R2P must evolve in at least one of two ways. The first is that it must acquire a legally binding status, in particular with respect to its Pillar 3, inclusive of formal limitations upon the permanent veto in mass atrocity situations, by which she is referring to the use of uh, uh, veto power by um, any of the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council. To bar military action which goes against their interests. The latter component is important because despite the diversity in actors that can be involved in instituting an R2P reaction, the United Nations Security Council holds a particularly sensitive role in authorizing the use of force and in adopting measures that are binding upon all UN member states. In this respect, ensuring that international reactions to R2P situations do not become hostage to the political interests of the P5, the five permanent members of the Security Council, is crucial to the doctrine's effective discharge. Should R2P fail to develop in line with the above, then it must at least come to recognize alternative means that can be pursued by states and or international organizations During situations of Security Council paralysis. And here she discusses the um, Uniting for Peace Doctrine, which was established by United Nations General Assembly Resolution 377 of 1950, in response to uh, Soviet use of the veto to block any resolutions that would uh, rein in its client state, North Korea. However, the first time that it was invoked, the first time that it was actually invoked, the Uniting for Peace doctrine, <clears throat> which basically holds that the uh, General Assembly can kind of, uh, in an emergency situation when the Security Council is paralyzed, internally paralyzed, the General Assembly, the body of all the UN member states, can kind of uh, you know, go over the head of the Security Council and pass binding resolutions on its own. The first time it was actually invoked was um, not to override um, <clears throat> a Russian veto, but to override French and British veto during the uh, Suez Crisis of 1956, and to put an end to their um, neo-colonial adventure in Egypt. Okay, to return to uh, Malawi. Although uniting for peace was not invoked in the Syrian context, it could and should have been utilized to facilitate a wide range of international responses to the r2p situation including through the general assembly's recommendation of the use of force in response to chemical weapons use as well as to assad and or russian military onslaughts against civilian populated areas such as that of east aleppo overall the international communities failure to respond appropriately to the Syrian R2P situation imparts two primary repercussions. First, it tragically facilitated the prolongation of the Syrian mass atrocity situation, which in turn claimed the lives and livelihoods of millions of Syrians. Second, it overlooked a compelling opportunity to develop R2P In line with its central objective of eradicating mass atrocity crimes. In this respect, it should be stressed that Syria was not the first mass atrocity situation to witness Security Council paralysis, nor is it expected to be the last. As such, a strong demonstration of political will by states and international organizations to protest and counter Security Council paralysis, including through calling for a formal restriction upon the permanent veto, through employing lawful measures and third-party countermeasures, and through pursuing Uniting for Peace, would have induced the Security Council to more seriously fulfill its primary role to maintain international peace and security, or alternatively, would have helped to ensure that the body's paralysis would no longer serve as an impediment for the effective discharge of R2P's Pillar 3. So, Yasmin Lalawi is certainly not saying that R2P is a uh, incomplete and poorly defined doctrine, therefore forget about it. <laughs> Just the opposite. She's saying it's an incomplete and poorly defined doctrine, so therefore let's make it complete and better defined and polish it up so that we can use it and actually respond to genocidal situations or mass atrocity crimes. And as for the uh, question of regime change, I'm going to uh, return to a, um, a passage which I'm pretty sure that I read already in that uh, podcast we did back in April discussing yes, the Nalawi's book. But um, I'll read it again, I guess. A Necessary Step in Evaluating the Lawfulness... Of regime change in Libya is to determine whether and how it can be reconciled with the object and purpose of Security Council Resolution 1973, namely that of civilian protection. And that, of course, was the Security Council resolution which uh, approved the U.S. military intervention. I should actually say, forgive me. The U.S. was playing third fiddle in that intervention, as is often overlooked to Britain and France but approved the Western military intervention in Libya. Okay, to return to the text, critics point to the subsequent deterioration of the situation in Libya following NATO's termination of its military campaign in October 2011, to contend that regime change not only failed to protect civilians, but was furthermore detrimental to the attainment of this objective. Specifically, Libya descended into civil war post-October 2011. Chaos and violence have overtaken the country, including through the continued commission of mass atrocity crimes by various armed factions and through an ongoing struggle for power between multiple political bodies. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees estimates that as of 2019, when she was writing, there are more than 200,000 internally displaced persons in Libya, and that a further 1.3 million people in the country are in need of humanitarian assistance. These figures invite skepticism regarding whether NATO's pursuit of regime change was aligned with the object and purpose of Security Council Resolution 1973 of Civilian Protection. A closer examination of NATO's military intervention in Libya, however, challenges the narrative of critics. Had NATO forces stopped short of regime change, it is likely that Gaddafi's forces would have recuperated and resumed their massacre of civilians, particularly given the clear intent demonstrated by Gaddafi to impose his dominance using brute force. Such a scenario can be likened to that of Syria, discussed in the next chapter, a similar mass atrocity situation that emerged in 2011 out of a violent government response to pro-democratic protests. The international community decided not to intervene militarily against Syria's Assad regime, and the result has been a brutal and ongoing conflict of which scale has far exceeded that of Libya. For example, in terms of civilian casualties, refugees, destroyed infrastructure, and more. Similarly, it is not inconceivable that any scenario that involved Gaddafi staying in power would have led to a bloody outcome far worse than what Libya currently faces which would run counter to the object and purpose of U.N. Security Council Resolution 1973. Okay, so those are um, Yasmin Malawi's actual words on precisely the questions which were posed by our listener, Eric uh, I, which I slightly condensed, not for content, but um, just for length, from her book, The Responsibility to Protect in Libya and Syria, Mass Atrocities, Human protection and international law. Okay, and turning from uh, Yasmin Malawi's words to my own words to Bill Weinberg's words, you know, I want to make clear what my motives here are. And I know this is going to be met with skepticism by my critics. But uh, you know, first of all, I generally do not make policy prescriptions. I see my job as to pose difficult questions more than to. Proper solutions. Now, there is nothing more unfashionable than to play devil's advocate in this extremely dogmatic age, but I consider it to be a vital intellectual exercise. So, I want to make clear that I am not up on a soapbox advocating humanitarian intervention. I'm trying to get people on the uh, anti-war left to think about this question, and above all, to listen to the people on the ground in the countries that they are supposedly concerned about. All right, now I'm flashing back to 2016, when the Syrian city of Aleppo was coming under massive sustained bombardment by Assad regime and Russian warplanes, and the people below, the people who were on the receiving end of the bombs, were taking to social media as best as they could and demanding a no-fly zone. And they even tried to, uh, you know, institute a kind of a, an informal or de facto no-fly zone by um, <clears throat> massively burning tires in the streets of Aleppo to create this haze over the city and cut down on visibility for the warplanes that were bombing them And, you know, they said on social media, we apologize to the world, we understand this is, you know, air pollution, (laughs) this is ecologically unsound, but we don't have any choice, our lives are at stake. And, you know, it's in a situation like this that anti-war folks in the West have got to acknowledge that there is a dilemma here, and that even, this is really the critical point, even, if you're going to take, you know, a pure inflexible, anti-interventionist position, and you just can't get behind a a no-fly zone under any circumstances. Okay, but even then, your first responsibility is to oppose the real Russian and Assad regime bombardment of Aleppo. Not the hypothetical no-fly zone, but all too many on the so-called anti-war left completely reversed those two priorities, raised not a peep about the destruction of Aleppo by warplanes, but opposed the no-fly zone on anti-war grounds, which, you know, just strikes me as rather a bizarre contradiction. So I want to know, you know, all of you purists out there, what was your answer to the people of Aleppo, who were demanding a no-fly zone, as their city was being reduced to rubble all around them? Was your answer to them, fuck you? That's not a great answer. (coughs) I'll point out another irony, that um, a couple of years later, in late 2019, when Turkey invaded Rojava, the Kurdish autonomous region in northern Syria, lots of Western anarchists who support the Rojava Kurds, all of a sudden, abandoned their anti-intervention principles and were calling for a no-fly zone over Rojava. I went to a rally up at Union Square against the Turkish intervention in Rojava, and there were all of these, uh, you know, all these anarchist types up there holding signs calling for a no-fly zone. Okay, now this is, you know, this is, to to a certain extent, this is kind of, you know, the anarchist fringe of the left. It's not like the mainstream anti-war left. But even so, there seems to be something of a double standard here. I mean, do Kurdish lives matter and Arab lives don't matter? Why is it acceptable to call for a no-fly zone in the case of Rojava? in 2019, but it wasn't acceptable to call for a no-fly zone in the case of Aleppo in 2016. I'd love to know. If you don't adhere to anarchist politics, and you don't have, uh, you know, leadership who have read the works of Murray Bookchin, you're not entitled to human rights? Is that it? And by the way, I've pointed out before that um, contrary to the standard calumnies about the Arab-Syrian resistance, which were spread by left, right, and center alike, There actually is an anarchist and grassroots democratic ethic in much of the civil resistance in the general Arab-led Syrian revolution, not merely the Kurdish one in Rojava. And the first time in my own, you know, political development that I became aware of this contradiction, the first time that my, uh, you know, sweeping anti-intervention dogmatism (laughs) was um, challenged or shaken was when I, uh, you know, got to know people from Bosnia back in the 1990s through my work with um, the War Resisters League, trying to provide some solidarity for uh, the people in all of the former Yugoslav republics who opposed, uh, you know, the extremist ethnic nationalism and sought multicultural coexistence and opposed all the warring parties and military conscription and so on. And um, I was surprised, or I mean, now I think it's kind of ridiculous that I was surprised, (laughs) looking back on it more than 20 years later, but well more than 20 years later. Um, But nonetheless, at the time, I was surprised because I was kind of naive that many of, uh, you know, the Bosnians, who I got to know, supported Western military intervention against the Serb forces, which were committing ethnic cleansing and besieging the city of Sarajevo and rounding Muslims up into the concentration camps and so on. And Sarajevo, recall, was under siege for more than three years at the cost of some 10,000 lives. And throughout this period, you know, I heard over and over again when I would, you know, raise all of the typical, you know, and criticisms of humanitarian intervention, and it was just at this time that the phrase humanitarian intervention was coming into fashion among the ruling elites in the West, <coughs> Every time I would raise, you know, the usual um, criticisms about whether the West, with all the blood that, you know, its leaders have on their hands, has any moral authority to intervene or any legal right to intervene under international law, given the inevitable Russian veto at the Security Council, my Bosnian friends told me over and over again, first intervene, then worry about whether you have the right to do so. And I'm reminded now of the, uh, you know, the very, social media savvy, opposition forces in the northern Syrian town of Kafran Bel, which tragically was recaptured by the Assad regime last year. But uh, for many years before that eventuality occurred, the people of Kafran Bel would hold up signs for the cameras and take pictures, which were then posted on social media, with messages to the world. And very often, Their messages were directed to the United States, criticizing its inaction in Syria, with phrases such as, America, has your spite not been sated by our blood? And now, tragically, the town of Kafran Bel is back in the hands of the regime, and I shudder to think what has become of all of the many Kafran Bel residents who I've seen holding up signs for the camera. On social media in the years before that. How many are still alive? How many have been absconded into the regime's clandestine prisons? How many have faced torture? Now, do I recognize the contradiction that the same United States that the people of Aleppo were appealing to for aid in 2016 would just a couple of years later go on to bomb the Syrian city of Raqqa, into rubble as part of its own military campaign against ISIS? Yes, I acknowledge that contradiction. And do I acknowledge the contradiction that the same United States that the people of Sarajevo were appealing to during the siege between 1992 and 1996 would just a couple of years later, in 1999, go on to bomb Belgrade with the inevitable so-called collateral damage Claiming some 2,000 civilian lives and an unknown number of cancers, probably caused by the bombing of the Panchevo petrochemical works, which was clearly a war crime. Do I acknowledge that contradiction? Yes, I acknowledge that contradiction. And I have never pretended that I have any answers, much less easy ones. In fact, I do these podcasts and I raise these questions precisely as an inoculation against the whole notion that there are any easy answers, which there are not. I acknowledge the contradictions with humanitarian intervention, but I also submit that in the face of genocide, the first imperative in our approach to the question should be to find a way to stop the genocide, and not to immediately start fishing around for an escape clause that will let us off the hook. For acting. Which brings us inevitably to what is happening in Kabul, Afghanistan, at this precise moment, and the U.S. desperately attempting to evacuate as many people out of the city as possible under an August 31st deadline for the withdrawal of all troops from the country, and the growing calls for the U.S. to stay on the ground beyond August 31st. Now, on my podcast of last week, I believe it was last week, about the situation in Afghanistan, I noted the um, looming prospect of a uh, proxy war, where you still got multiple warring factions on the ground, the Taliban, ISIS, and the incipient resistance forces in the Panjshir Valley, which could be, you know, exploited and manipulated by the great powers, which could be once again drawn in, To the Afghan war, whether it's the United States or possibly Russia or China. And I said, great powers, hands off Afghanistan. And I acknowledge that every day the U.S. has boots on the ground, the more it is inexorably drawn into the conflict. And just yesterday, we saw this horrific suicide attack at the Kabul airport where upwards of 100 were killed overwhelmingly Afghan civilians, but including 12 U.S. troops. And Biden has apparently already carried out a drone strike in Afghanistan's Nangarhar province in retaliation. So already it's escalating, perfectly cognizant of the risks. In fact, more than risks, the inevitability that every minute the U.S. has troops on the ground, the quagmire is deepening. But I also have to ask Is the world supposed to abandon the thousands who are desperate to flee Afghanistan? And it's only a fraction of them that the U.S. is going to get out, under the best of circumstances. And if it isn't going to be the U.S. which is undertaking this operation, this desperate last-minute rear guard operation, who is it going to be? Is there time for the Security Council to actually act to um, launch such a logistically complicated operation? without the U.S. or any of the other imperial powers which actually have the hardware at their disposal involved? Obviously not. So acknowledging the contradiction is one thing, but washing your hands like Pontius Pilate and taking a pure all-troops-out-now position, regardless of the circumstances, is another. It may make you feel good, it may make you feel very pure and morally superior, but it shows little solidarity with the people on the ground in this case, the many thousands of Afghans, now desperate to leave the country. And if it isn't first and foremost about human lives and the people on the ground and their demands and desires and aspirations and human rights, then you have fundamentally lost the plot as far as I'm concerned. For a little corrective perspective, I'm going to read one more thing before I sign off from the op-ed page of the New York Times of this past Tuesday, August twenty-fourth, by one Arash Azizada, a community organizer based in Los Angeles who has been coordinating efforts to evacuate Afghans from Kabul. A piece entitled, This is What the Afghan Evacuation Looks Like on the Inside. A network of veterans, private sector workers, human rights activists, and other volunteers. We're coordinating on different platforms and languages. We're figuring out what Taliban checkpoints to avoid and what gate at the airport is the most accessible. We're raising money, millions of dollars overnight, to charter planes. We're endlessly compiling spreadsheets with information about Afghans who are under threat from the Taliban. We're doing this because the American government isn't. United States officials claim they're presiding over an orderly exit but the chaos on the ground suggests otherwise. Those evacuated in the past 10 days, approximately 58,700 people, according to American officials, appear to be mostly American citizens, and the situation, fluid and frenzied, is far from under control. Friends and family we've tried to evacuate have been shot and beaten up by the Taliban, despite American promises of security at the airport. In the absence of guidance, it has fallen to us, using our phones and laptops to figure out how to rescue Afghans scrambling for their lives. When Afghans speak to me now, they all whisper, hoping desperately to avoid detection. Their workplaces and homes are being raided by armed men, as the Taliban search for journalists, activists, prominent figures, anyone who has spoken out against their brutality. It goes far beyond critics. In some areas of Kabul, the Taliban are reportedly compiling a list of houses belonging to members of the Hazara and Shia minority communities, whom they consider heretics. While in front of international TV cameras, the Taliban speak of amnesty for all who fought against them. The reality for Afghans on the ground is completely different. The people I'm talking to sometimes go silent. All of a sudden, their Twitter and Instagram accounts stop. No posts no stories, no tweets. Some have switched to encrypted messaging, their communication ever more frantic. For those who venture outside, bravely pouring into the streets, for example, to celebrate Afghan's Independence Day last week, waving now-banned Afghan flags, bullets await. The attempt to flee is perilous. Many, including American citizens, have reached the airport only to be stopped, beaten, and turned away. Their homes are now marked by the taliban the afghan people have been all but abandoned to their fate despite its promises to evacuate thousands of at-risk afghans who assisted the united states the biden administration has effectively left the job to afghan american community organizers operating from overseas with minimal resources that must change immediately the biden administration needs to establish security in and around the airport beyond the August 31st deadline for final withdrawal, and make certain that everyone who needs to can actually make it onto an evacuation flight. I'm going to add two more paragraphs, which uh, hopefully what he's saying is something that all progressives will support. The administration must drop its onerous immigration regulations, For example, asking Afghans to present threat letters or insisting they first travel to a third country before their cases are processed and provide family reunification applications, which should be expedited and prioritized. It should go further still. In the aftermath of American intervention in Cuba and Vietnam, refugees from both countries were granted refuge. The same should happen now. The United States has a clear role in causing the humanitarian disaster slowly unfolding in Afghanistan today. For those millions of Afghans whose lives have been turned upside down by two decades of American military action, ending at a poorly organized withdrawal, nothing less than a complete humanitarian parole offered to any Afghan whose life is in danger will do. Okay, I hope that we can all support that, but I can already, you know, anticipate the hedging or outright rejection of the call for the Biden administration to establish security in and around the airport beyond the August 31st deadline for final withdrawal, and make certain that anyone who needs to can actually make it onto an evacuation flight. And is the author of this piece, Arash Azizada, aware of the inherent contradiction of acknowledging the role of U.S. military invasion and occupation and bombardment of Afghanistan in creating the disaster there, yet calling For the U.S. to remain with troops on the ground beyond the August 31st deadline, I submit that yes, Arash Azizada is probably well aware of that contradiction. Life is full of contradictions, and those who are comfortable in their inflexible dogmas are not fulfilling as socially useful a role in this world as those who are grappling and wrestling with contradictions. As Martin Buber put it, becoming is superior to being. This has been Bill Weinberg with The Counter Vortex. Please check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash countervortex. Become a subscriber for um, $2 per weekly episode, and uh, you too will get to mandate what I'm going to be ranting about for one podcast per year that you are subscribed. Join the counter vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.